Hey, everybody. Welcome to the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, here with Scott Adlerberg for part two of our conversation about Ishmael Reed's novel Mumbo Jumbo. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Hello. Good. <laughs> so <laughs> pause to get a little wine. I'm fine. Everything's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to you got to perk up. Right, um, right. Yeah, that's something that nobody has ever said to Scott Adlerberg. You need to you need to have a little bit more energy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so last time when we left off, that that whole week ago. Oh um, yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where if I can even remember the book anymore. I don't know. Yeah, I know it's been a while. Yeah, um, you were talking about Harding, and yes. something that the now I. I think that I might have seen this somewhere uh, in many of the conspiracy theory texts that I read, but I'd never kind of paid it any attention. But mm. if you would like to, you can, for the listeners, let them know what exactly it is that uh, Reed via Mumbo Jumbo posits about uh, President Harding. Well, in the book, which was obviously written well before Barack Obama was on the scene, he talks about how there was this theory, very apparent, because again, you know, I did some research after reading this. I had no idea when I read the book um, that it was a common rumor in the 20s when Warren Harding was president that he had a black ancestor and essentially had some black blood in him, which would, you know, in theory, would make him the first black president. Because if you have any black blood in this country, you're black. You're black. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, there was some theory that, some rumor that, not that far back, maybe, I forgot if it's a, a grandparent or great-grandparent, that, uh, you know, someone in his family had had sexual relations with someone black and that led directly down to him, to him. And yeah. in the book, you know, I mean, no one ever, I don't know if there's anyone who thinks all that highly of Warren Harding as a president, you know, it seems like he was a pretty easygoing guy, but corrupt, not a great president. Mm -hmm. or his administration at least was corrupt, not a great president. Um, in the book, he says, like, he has somebody ask Warren Harding about this, and Harding's like, yeah, maybe, whatever, I wouldn't be surprised, so what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he basically does say that in the book. He's like, I, I've heard that, uh, but I don't really think about it, so who cares? It's possible that my, you know, whatever it was, my grandfather jumped over the fence that one day and, you know, essentially, like, had sex. I don't know, I don't think about it much. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah, which is kind of interesting because the book does play into all this sort of political intrigue, and uh, the theme is still obviously Jess Grew versus Aitonists. Where does where does Harden fall as far as the novel's concerned? Well, Harding, I guess he has to be. He has to come down on the side of the Aitonists because he's sort of um, he is the president, and he's sort of like oversees what's you know is aware of what's going on. He doesn't seem as much as a as much of a hard ass though as Woodrow Wilson, who you know, uh, uh, or Calvin Coolidge, I guess, who comes after him, who's more more straight. Because he says he has Harding like coming to Harlem and he's hanging out at a at like a party a speakeasy yeah. for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah, he seems like kind of a party person, so he doesn't seem that bad, really. Which I think was Harding's reputation actually, but. Um, I don't know if he ever came to Harlem and hung out, but he was like, you know, pretty live and let live. Mm -hmm. But I think after that, you know, he sort of exits the scene and you've got Coolidge and he clearly doesn't think much of Woodrow Wilson because he's got a character, you know, named Woodrow Wilson Jefferson, who's, you know. Yeah, well, he's got, that, he's got that Jefferson thrown in too, just and to make got, it a yes, little, that little extra knife twist, Jefferson right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, some, um, Sally, some Sally Hemings uh, angles there. Absolutely, um, yeah. But, um, so that's kind of interesting where, you know, you have Harding who falls on the side of the Aitonists. And I wonder if this isn't, I don't know, I don't know if it's gross or not, but is it maybe the fact that, you know, this is an ostensibly white president who might have had a little bit of black blood inside of him uh, is, it, is this kind of Aitonist figure. Does that kind of tie into how Reed feels about black folks who go over to quote unquote, the white side might be reaching there, but I don't know if that might be symbolic of that or if it's just, or if it's just this guy's mind at work, it seems like a brain that can't be turned off. So there is that kind of thing 
too. I think it's I I think it's it's more that, and I think it's also in line with, you know, it, maybe that was fairly like a not completely unknown um, rumor at the you know back in the. Um, Back in the 20s, but it's clearly not that well known now. And I think part of this novel, you know, in a way, I can, I mean, I could see why Pynchon loves Ishmael Reed. There's, there are some similarities of there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and Without one of them is, uh, and connected to the Warren Harding thing is, he really, rel- Ishmael Reed really relishes not just, you know, reinterpreting history, but exploring like these little unknown things of history. Uh, and I think that's one of them. I think in Eastern parties, like, you know, this country thinks it's this, this, and this. At one point, a lot of people thought that we actually had a black president. I mean, it'd be mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. to see, you know, this is written well before Obama, but it's fun. like the fact that he puts that in, I think is a sign of like, there are a lot of historical things that nobody knows about. They get buried, they get forgotten. And yeah. this is kind of an anti-historical book in that sense. Or the right. al- not anti, but alternate history is a better mm-hmm. way to put it. Mm-hmm. I think he really gets into that a lot. Uh, and, and I think that as far as the anti-history angle of the book goes, I think that that kind I think the lack of fidelity to what we know of as fact is pretty important there too, because I do think there's, um, oh man, I'm hoping that I remember this correctly. There's something in the epilogue. So in the epilogue, Papa Labas given a, talk to student he's like a hundred and something years old he's right, very right. old it's we've jumped to the 70s he's kind of talking well to let them. me just wait before you ju- let me just at the you know the end of the book they don't find the text the jess grew text it was it was either burn it was it was burned there's not we know that that's for mm-hmm, sure it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh it's destroyed and right. the jess grew virus which was a a big fear in the 20s dies down so it appears that the eight mists have completely won i mean that's the context right which is funny because the book takes then the book jumps us to the 70s and people are kind of avidly listening to papa labat talk about all this kind of stuff right and it's this idea that like oh it's coming back that's the that's that's the the gist and this is after like the militant 60s the black panthers and everything else so by that point it wouldn't be a stretch to say maybe the dress grew is black. There's certainly more black consciousness in the world than there were, you know, that, at that point, right? There's a big, big yeah. movement for that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a point where he uh, he's accosted at the end by this uh, person who I guess stands on a soapbox outside of the university, and mm-hmm. he's kind of a the '70s version of a hotep. Have you heard of right, hoteps? Right. Do, you know, do you know what these guys do? These uh, these hoteps are essentially black guys uh, on the internet today who are essentially Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. They're they're very conspiracy theorist heavy. Um, they are pretty misogynistic. Um, but the whole idea, like actually, now that I think about it, there's some kind of hotep vibes to this whole book. Although this book is not anywhere nearly as like militant or nasty as those people mm-hmm. are. But they, I, they might have read mumbo jumbo and taken away a lot of the wrong ideas, right? Right, right. Um, so anyway, so this guy is yelling at people outside of the college about kind of what Hamid yells at them for, like they need discipline, they need to focus, mm-hmm. and he accosts Laba when he's getting into his uh, 1919 Studebaker, the right? locomobile that he wears, the lo- the locomobile, yeah, <laughs> loco, um, right? Yeah, and. Uh, he tells him, you know, why are you filling their heads with all this nonsense? Like they need, they need to know the facts. They need to know how things actually happened. They need to, mm. and he says something to the effect. I don't have the exact quote. This is one of the downsides of listening to an audiobook. Let me where take a he, look here. He yeah. says something to the effect of the facts not necessarily like being the most important. That 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 art should be free associative. That mm. we should not be following a kind of it should be like that art should be like jazz, and mm. that we should not be following these kind of strict rules about what you can and cannot do, like when you're making art or when you're telling stories that you have to associate that. And it kind of sums up the whole book at the end there, right? Because right. The, the book, when you hear Labas say it, whatever it was, and I apologize for mangling that quote, but. When you get to the end of it and you hear that quote, you realize that's what this whole book has been doing. There's mm-hmm. a reason why 
that there's no strong character development, why people go, I remember the very first sort of long monologue happens with Hamid at that party, uh, like 60 pages or so into the book. And it just becomes this point where you realize that it's not Hamid talking anymore. It's Reed writing an essay. And yeah, yeah, no, he does that. that. Absolutely, um, right. But that's kind of the free associative Jess Grew. The book itself is is an act of Jess Grew. Yeah, I would, I would argue good, that. I see what you're saying. Right, that's right. a good point. The yeah. book itself is, I mean, it would be very hard to like, you know, you could it'd be extremely, I, don't, I mean, it really wouldn't be much point, but it would, even if you were inclined, it would be very hard to pick this book apart in that way because it is, it's, obviously extremely well put together and threaded it's not that long it's you know what 200 page a little over 200 pages but it goes all over the place it's tight but it goes all over the place it's structured mm -hmm. tightly but you can't really figure out what that structure is it is kind mm -hmm. of like jess grew in that sense right where, where would the uh, characters even go in this book where no, would yeah. you even like, and why would you even want to kind of follow them wherever they go? Right. Like, it's 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 it's, it's a it's a it's a series of things happening, and there are certain points in the book where we follow Hinkle von Vampton. Got it right this time. Mm -hmm. uh, we we follow him for you know 10, 15 chapters. We we follow the bad guy, right. and and then and then when we have the art heist, we follow we follow that thread. Uh, all the way to its conclusion that doesn't really the, the so to back no, up it's not, it's not that kind it's not that kind of a book i mean that's where the postmodernist angle you would no more read this book for character development than you'd read a pension novel or you'd read a number of books from that from that period it's and it's something like unless you read a lot of those, some of those books very few people write that way anymore i mean it's really yeah. there are not everything now is social realism. I mean, that's for sure. But most books, at least that I see or come across or read, do more or less develop character in a semi somewhat realistic way, if not a fully. Yes. And this is the kind of book these books do not, you know, do not don't do that. They just they don't, don't do, do and it. He has no interest in doing that. And he, he even no makes interest. a yeah. point of kind of ridiculing that social realist model and books that do do that. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I think that my particular style of writing, with uh, where I'm basically aping film, and I'm doing scene after scene, and I'm thinking, okay, how do I develop these characters? Uh, my early books were very much inspired by The Wire, so mm. I wanted every scene to kind of have these kind of. Reading something like this blew my head off because I realized, oh. You don't need any of those things, right? No, not I if mean, you're doing it, a lot it, of other stuff. Not right. if you're doing a lot of other stuff. And it also it doesn't hurt to be as brilliant as Ishmael Reed, which we can't all be. But at the same be, right. time, hey, at I the think, same time, we can. I feel like we can take something from this as writers. Right. He also, I mean, he also makes it clear. Uh, yeah, I've never, like, you know, read what Ishmael Reed thinks of Pynchon. We know Pynchon loves Reed. But, you know... The names were like that. It's that kind of book. When you have names like Hinkle von Vampton and, you know, uh, Saint Gould and Biff Musselwhite, you don't take those people as real people. I mean, obviously, yeah. like like any of the pension, that Tyrone Slothrop and Stanley Fallopian, Stanley <laughs> Kotex and Peter Fallopian. You know, you don't. Yeah. Of course not. I mean, that that's right. not the. But you, he makes that very clear from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think that again, I think that there's something to take away from, and I wish that we would see more novels like that these days that were are largely unconcerned with things that quote unquote make a novel. I don't, I don't mean to take too right. much of a detour into this, but I, it isn't, it is still a but writing no, it podcast, right? Because I, I was I mean, reading <laughs> it, because I used, I, I really love, I can't stress this, and I, I love that those write the post because I used to just has been a just as so happened, it's been a while since I read. But if you look at my bookshelves, Barth, Barthlemy, Pynchon, Coover, Rob, all those, I have a lot of those writers. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of them, and they're some of my favorite writers. It's just been a while since I. And you just, you and know. you open up a book. And it was great days. to read somebody like that again, you know? Yeah, because you open up a book these days and you're introduced to a small town cop, right? And you have to watch the small town cop go into his station and eat a donut and talk to his secretary oh and call goodness. his wife, who's telling him about how the begonia are doing in the garden and 
then I'll then you cut over to the bad guy and the bad guy right. is snorting meth off of a hooker's twat and right, he's right, you know right. and but he's also, also but he's also sad right he's also, also really like sad this, about the, something right the book you know jumps around I mean a lot of books jump around but there are different ways of jumping around in terms of setting of mm-hmm. someone who's more realistically oriented even books that are not quote realistic follow these templates like they do with the character development thing you know. They are they're essentially even even a lot even some of the books I read that are more on the bizarro side or even mm-hmm. they they essentially follow a, a logical template. Right. The events are weird and the characters, but the structure of the novel is a very is That's a pretty right. conventional structure. Let's That's put it right. that way. That's and the right. language used more or less is conventional. It's more or less conventional. And this structure of the novel is the form it doesn't challenge you with the form. Here it, it's it's so free. Once he one second uh, like you said, once one free second is he, the word. he doesn't waste time jumping around, you know, you know. Right. Well it's free because once he's he stops being interested in something, he lets it go. Once yeah. he said what he's had to say about a particular thing, it's over and done. And that well, is just so he well, has no fidelity to what is supposed to happen in a book. Oh, right. Like this, we you know, we talked, there's a whole section we talked, we met, we made a reference to it in our previous, um, you know, recording a week ago. Oh, I don't even talk. remember it. I don't even remember if that. I can shit. remember now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we talked, there's a whole section here. No, it's, it's a key. It's the maybe central section of the book where after all these things have happened, he describes essentially the the uh, gist behind the mystery of what Jess Grew is. And he says a 40-page sort of 40-page uh, di- explanation that dates back to ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And he, he reinvents the sort of Osiris versus Set um, myth. Right. And um, Osiris essentially is the is the god from which Jess Grew sprang. I guess you could boil it down to that. And mm-hmm. Set repressionist that he is mm-hmm. is the god from which the atonist sprang and repression so i'm just looking at like one of these passages and he goes into this one passage he in one passage he talks that he's this is all in the context of a reinvented myth so right. it's a real myth osiris set isis uh-huh. but he he reinterprets it and reinvents it within that context he has a paragraph here where he talks about julian the emperor of rome the last yeah, the apostate emperor. Yeah. Right, Julian the Apostate. From there, he goes into John Milton, and he's still talking about Set and Osiris in his own context of the of the myth he re. This is all within like a half a page. Yeah, you know, yeah. Who does yeah. something like that? And then he doesn't stop. He goes from Osiris and Set to Moses. Right. Right. He, exactly. he, he talks about and he talks about how Moses was the first Bokor. And he makes right. a distinction between a hungan, who's a kind of a real voodoo priest who's following the right-hand path, versus a bokor, who's like a charlatan who follows the left-hand path. And right. he talks about how Moses, actually, Moses is kind of, if it wasn't von Vanten, it would be Moses, who is the real bad guy of this novel. Because yeah. Moses just, he he wants... He wants those secrets. So we can go into that a little bit and explain to the listeners what happens. So he tells the story of Osiris and Set, who are these brothers. Papa uh, Labasa tells it, right. He does, yeah, because right. he's basically, he's he's got his 22, his pearl-handled 22 pointed right. at Von Vanten, he, and everybody's he, like, what's, the, what's is, the meaning I, of this? And I, I just, just as a little background, because I, I talk, I'll talk anyone who, when that piece comes out on Crime Read, this is a major part of it. But basically, he investigates in the, in the plot, there is a real mystery, and Ishmael Reed wrote it in part as a very unconventional detective story, and even called it that. And after they sort of solve the, make their arrest, he basically has a group of people around them, like in a conventional mystery, and they're mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? What's the explanation? And then he says, okay, and he, this is the explanation. Like, imagine Hercules Poirot had a 40-page explanation of the crime, and he started talking about some reinterpreted myth in ancient Egypt. That's yeah. essentially what happens here. <laughs> so 
so fucking <laughs> that's, that's cool, man. It's so here. fucking cool. Like, what is I was this like, guy talking oh, about? Oh, man, that really clinched it. I was, uh, just as a personal side note, I was totally on board with the novel the whole way. And then when it made that left-hand turn, I opened up my Audible app to see how long the, <laughs> the, the chapter was and found that it was going to be an hour and 20 minutes. And I was like, fuck yes. He's I going know. for it. I did right. <laughs> see, as I was as he started going into that, I, I had the same experience like through the book. It goes on and on. I'm like, this is the fucking like mystery explanation in a mystery. This is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Forty pages of this. Okay, and this and I actually wrote a note in the book. This is what he's telling the people sitting there. Is he yeah. explaining? Oh this? yeah, dude. Yes, fuck it yeah, is. is. That's right. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> oh, god damn. I can't explain how brilliant this shit is. But so he goes back and he tells this story of Osiris and Set. For people who don't know, I believe the way the more pedestrian narrative goes is that Set was a jealous brother of Osiris, who was the king who did marry Isis, who was both of their sisters. Weird. Right. Um, we announced. That's a, yeah. Uh, but the way that the basic story goes, it's actually less about Osiris and Set, and it's more about Horus, because Osiris gets uh, essentially killed and mutilated by Set, mm. and his body parts are spread all over the place. And then mm. um, essentially, I think that in the original myth, I want to say that Isis finds his penis and impregnates herself. That's not how it, it was happens something here. Like, I think you're that's right. not how it happens remember, here. Yeah. But I think that that's what happens there. And when she impregnates herself with his penis and gives birth to Horus, who ends up, you know, overcoming Set, who's like a, more of the. Um, I thought he was the god of the underworld, but here he seems to be more of a sun king right yeah uh so i'm and not pe- i'm not exactly just, like the the lines between what the what the i guess quote-unquote actual mythology and the Redian mythology are a little skewed for me mm-hmm. but but reed fucks that whole thing up anyway yeah so yeah in his vert do you want to tell it or do you want me to tell it uh no you got it no you yeah, in his well yeah yeah i mean in his version Osiris Set essentially is like a petty tyrant after mm-hmm. and he's mm-hmm. he's jealous of Osiris for a number of reasons, but Osiris essentially is cool connected to the earth and, and nature. And he believe yeah. kind of believes in many gods, so to, basically. And Set's envious and jealous of him for many reasons, not the least of which is Isis likes Osiris more than she likes Set, right? I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um and while Osiris, you know, kind of is touring the world with his Nile root orchestra. <laughs> yeah. Is, he's like goes abroad. And he's like, you know, this is an he's the he's he's the reason why the Olmec heads exist and why right. like Aztec pyramids exist because he's, right. he's traveled all over these places and and done his uh, his Jess Grew routine in his front Jess of all Grew these routine yeah, with his yeah. with his Nile root orchestra bringing good music and good times and good vibes wherever he goes in the world. Set is back in Egypt, just like stewing and just brewing being a and real, just being a bitch, just, just being <laughs> an ass, a total fucking asshole. <laughs> no, yeah, that's you're right. That's it. And he's and he's everything that represents repression. And he starts he starts to lose his mind on top of it. And he and he starts worshiping the sun and making everybody else worship the sun. And there's only there must only be one god. You cannot worship, you know. So the so essentially that's another big point is at that point, you know, civilization, and it carries over to Western civilization, gets cut from its basic connection to nature. I think that's pretty important because he makes a point of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when people believed in the gods, so to speak, and the the, later maybe the Loas, that connection to nature was cut. So human, the Western civilization is not an original thought per se, but he really, he had, that's something that Reed also sort of, you know, it develops a little bit, I think, or a uh, lot, uh-huh. right? Right. Um, and from that point on, that's sort of when you have the split between the eight mists and the, um, and and like most uh, eight mists versus maybe the Jess Screw carriers, Set seems to be more, would you agree with this? He's more disciplined and focused in his, you know, in his mm-hmm. goal because he has that kind of like repressive mindset. And he while is. Osiris is yeah. off touring the world, he's yeah. co- you know collecting power. And, right. And it's yeah. it's it's even less that uh, that Set has it, but that he imposes it upon his followers. I think right, that's an right. important distinction. It's he not does. necessarily no, right. that he's the most disciplined person ever, but he, that's what he 
preaches. That's what he wants he everybody to kind of follow. Fear and so on. Yeah, right. right, exactly. So Osiris comes back, and in his travels, he has learned how to kind of perform this ritual where he becomes a seed, um, where he's buried underground for many, many days, which is an interesting callback to early in the novel when uh, Black Herman, who's an esotericist, uh, mm. kind of a sidekick of Papa Laba in this book. He is, right. He, he does mention very early in the book, he's like, oh, yeah, I uh, uh, people were amazed because I showed them my trick where I, I bury myself alive for eight days and then come back out. So <laughs> right. you... That's an, that it's just one of the many things that Reed does where there's payoffs if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but so anyway, so Osiris has this trick and he decides to perform it in Egypt. Uh, of course, Set has his followers unearth him while he's in his trance, mutilate him, spread his body everywhere. But the problem becomes, again, that idea of Osiris as a seed. Um mm-hmm. Which goes back to you know the original myth of like the penis and you know it, it containing right. seed and things like this. Um, this wherever the mutilated pieces of uh, Osiris go, Osiris himself kind of springs up in spiritual form mm-hmm. and starts to like take over. Um, which, as a side note, to take a to take kind of a, a, a detour here within the mythology, this is something that I thought was really interesting because. Isis mourns for Osiris by kind of like rending her garments and screaming. And Set is very concerned with her uh, mourning properly. And Reed also takes a detour there and talks about how, uh, you know, black women in particular like mourn at funerals with Mm. a bunch of like screaming and all this kind of stuff. And how there's this, there's always been this polite society that's been like, oh, you're mourning incorrectly. You should Mm -hmm. be more kind of dignified in your mourning. But she's she's all like she's a hundred percent into it, right? Right. So pure expressive after, grief, yeah. Yeah, pure expressive grief, exactly. So once Set uh, is kind of you know gone, uh, we sort of I, th- I think after that we jump to Moses. So we kind of right. jump forward in time, and we get the kind of, we get the biblical explanation of uh, his mother, whose name I can't remember, finding him in a basket, and he sort of grows up under a setian rule he's mm-hmm. a, he's a pharaoh he's royalty but he wants to learn uh he wants the jess grew basically right. so he's on his travels and he ends up finding this guy named jethro which i thought was mm-hmm. really funny um, <laughs> yeah. uh who has that thing he's an osirian Uh, Mm -hmm. musician essentially and him and his old buddies are are able to kind of conjure this sort of you know this this mind magic with their music so moses uh and this this is where the the book gets funny at a lot of points but the book i think had me actually laughing uh, when they're describing Moses uh, trying to get ingratiated with Jethro, that was because funny. Yeah, yeah. because he's like, I guess I'm about to leave, and he's like, Oh well, I can't give the secrets to anybody who doesn't, you know, marry my daughters. And then Moses right. comes back and says, Oh, I couldn't leave because I'm just so in love with your yeah. <laughs> with your daughter. <laughs> with your beautiful. <laughs> uh, so Moses essentially uh, steals the secrets. Um, falls out of favor with Jethro, but he doesn't realize that if you if you follow the book of Thoth at the wrong point, um, there's a a point that he makes a bit later in the book, and I think at this point as well, which is like there's no good or bad magic. There's just mm-hmm. magic that you can do at inappropriate time. Right. And when you do it at the wrong time, comes the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So Moses essentially inadvertently becomes a bokor because he doesn't heed those warnings right and so he's able to like he even says like he'll just perform simple bokor tricks like turning a staff he becomes kind of scared by the power he realizes that he has yeah yeah Yeah. right so so then he becomes this sort of like disgruntled you know leader of these people and you know and there's a great bit when you know when they're worshiping the the golden calf because mm. Reed goes into how the bull has been emasculated in in modern astrology and and all these other things. So when he sees them worshiping the bull god Apis, he kind of loses his shit and doesn't like it. So he ties it into biblical mythology really nicely there. But th- then you jump all the way to to the uh, to the um, um, Templars, right? Knights nice Templar, and, eleven in the eleven hundreds, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and 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 also. 
just pointing out, like, it's hard. It's really hard to uh, convey the language that this whole 40 page. Yeah, it's is. all really funny. And it's, it's written, very funny. It's, 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 it's written it. with people like almost like kind of just jive talking at certain points, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, it does. Use, it does use jive talking at one point. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, I just wanted to like, yeah, just to give an example, like when he this whole section, when he, you know, first he mentioned during the whole history of how this all went down. And he talks about the last attempt of Julian, who was like the last, uh, you know, person to try to fight back against Christianity. But the right. Atonists were too powerful for Julian. He was assassinated. Um, and he says uh, he failed in his gallant attempt to reverse the Atonist challenge. He foresaw the bad news it was going to bring to the world. John Milton, Atonist apologist extraordinaire himself. Saw the coming of the minor geek and sorcerer, Jesus Christ. The minor geek and sorcerer, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, as sorry. a way of ending the cult of Osiris and Isis forever. And then he goes on. But just to get back, like sort of tying into what you were saying earlier about how Reed really like rips into the critics. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about, um, he talks, he's still going on about John Milton. And he mentions, there's a part from Paradise Lost that he quotes. And he says, this is from his hymn, blah, 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 in Paradise Lost on the morning of Christ's nativity, which is nothing but a simple necktie party out to get Osiris's goat. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and those timbrel is the music, you know, that Jethro played. And he said the music of, the, of Jethro's people were worshippers of, of those festivals where they had a ball, boogie, mm -hmm. expressing themselves, like you said, talking yeah. jive. Right. John Milton couldn't stand that. Another Atonist. That's why English professors like him. He's like their amulet, keeping niggers out of their departments and stepping out just screw before it invades their careers. Yep. And yep. then he get, you know. Um, so he, and this is in the middle of the part about the reinterpretation of the of the myth. So he jumps around in time. He makes, he he goes out, you know, he criticizes academia, John Milton. Then it's back to Thoth, Set, Osiris, Moses, all you know, flowing smoothly. Right. It's, yeah. it's something. It's remarkable. Yeah. I just but, I don't I don't even know how he did it. I don't know I how know. he did it. He had yeah. to just it had to be written quickly. It had to be done in in, 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 in a, in a like quick it. go. Um, I just I couldn't see this being something that you would think over for too long. Yeah. You'd have to just be like, no, nah, I'm just going for it. You got to have the knowledge inside, and then it comes. And then, then you do that's it. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But, but that that sort of like so, um, you know, he basically. I think it also, I guess it makes a point, you know, without stating it outright, there's something, I guess, in human nature or in human beings, mm. in the human mm -hmm. mind, maybe, mm. that seems to find it simpler to gravitate towards Atonist thinking. I mean, why, yeah. uh, why else are the Atonists, there's no doubt the Atonists are winning in history and have won right. more often than not in history, right? Right, And the right. book doesn't really deny that. Yeah. So why is it that set, one over Osiris, and then John Milton and the others passed this along, and Freud. I guess that's implicit in the you know in, in the book is that there's something that's in human nature in the human mind that it finds it more um, fits more nicely with atonist kind of thinking yeah. than not, and mm -hmm. that, and that there ha always have to be people like Papa Labas, and he's there at the end to say there is a, a countercurrent to this, there is an alternative. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Well, I think that one of the main things that would make it more difficult to handle than Atonism is that it's inherently complex. Um, yeah. One of the things about Jess Groove throughout the whole book is that as a reader, you're constantly trying to define it in your head. You're trying to figure right. out what exactly it is Yeah. to a certain point. And then I think I got to a point in the narrative where I sort of got it intuitively if I wasn't able to get it down in precise language. Mm. Um, I don't think I he think, wants you to get it down. If he did, I don't think he'd he does. Give the, yeah. He'd give you the text or some of mm -hmm. the text, and he doesn't, mm. you know. Precisely, burned, so you, yeah, that's you know, right. right. That's right, and it was burned, and it's important that it was burned also because the part of Atonism is this sort of, is the idea of having a text, is the mm -hmm. idea of having this sort of straightforward set of rules that you can follow, whether they're the Ten Commandments or Hammurabi's Code or or whatever the rules whatever. happen to right. be. You know, like you have to follow the rules. You have to have discipline and just you know, do that. Just and that like Hinkle von Vampton was worth 
that whole thing with the black the black android. Um, mm-hmm. They were writing a newspaper, right? Weren't they always putting yeah. out? So again, it was words, text, text. This is how we're going to influence people through 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 text, through words. And it's almost important to think about like what it's even called. It's called just grew, right? It just grows. It just grew. Yeah. So in a way that that pertains to my mind, at least more through music that seems to happen almost as you listen to it. Mm. Um more so than in text. I think that this in particular, I would go so far as to say that this is a just grew text because mm-hmm. it does seem to just grow from different points and then mm-hmm. end whenever it wants. But that sort of lack of symmetry or uh, adherence to plot or what have you is exactly doing that that kind of thing. Atonism is... You have to get from point A to point B. You have to have this sort of character development. You have to have this, this, and this happen. Mm. So in a, in a meta way, the text of Mumbo Jumbo in and of itself is an anti-Atonist screed. Screed, yeah. right. Screed, yeah. no, screed I, what have you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know. I think it makes total sense. And I think the title, Mumbo Jumbo, <laughs> yeah. Mumbo Jumbo at the very least is a couple of meetings. To white people, you know, to white standard white sort of civilization yeah. mumbo jumbo means you know nonsense right you're talking right. mumbo jumbo you're talking hoodoo you're talking spells it means nonsense stop talking mumbo jumbo it also means it's another sort of uh which i didn't know until i read the book but there's a, another epigraph here if i can um comes from mandingo you know west african language yeah. and uh, he gives the african version which is similar to mumbo jumbo it's mama gombo or something and it means quote magician who makes the troubled spirits of ancestors of ancestors go away mm-hmm. magician who makes the troubled spirits of ancestors go away so in the african original version it has a very meaningful and yeah. actually positive uh definition yeah it really does yeah that's a great that that's a great meaning yeah, and it's and it kind of feels like if you were to be talking to spirits of ancestors in order to calm them down, you wouldn't give them an ABC plot, because I don't right. think they would understand that very much. They'd understand right. feeling more than they would understand the logic Linear, of a plot. Progressive, right? Exactly. Right. You're at, yes. you're outside of considering this cosmology as a real thing. You would be outside of time. You wouldn't right. have a body anymore. You wouldn't really. You would only understand feeling. So they would understand things like music or right you know or or imagery or or what what have you and that's i think what right and no i know and i i think that i mean even so even there in the title you get a perfect example of the sort of dichotomy you have the western standard definite mumbo jumbo that's the title of the of ishmael reed's book mm-hmm. you have the standard western definition of what that means which is nonsense yeah, you know, uh, so yeah, nonsense, idiots, you know, whatever, something that right. doesn't make sense. Which then you have the African definition, which is perfectly in tune with Reed's themes, which is to look at things from an Afrocentric viewpoint, pre-Western civilization or alternative to Western civilization, which is the Mandingo definition is a completely different and very meaningful definition to the white, right. to the standard Western definite. Yeah. That's probably yeah. the book in a nutshell right there. Yeah, you know? it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's not that it's nonsense. It's that it's something other than your sense. Right. And you in know? this, exact, and in this case, you know, to sort of, uh, what does it say? To sort of uh, wipe away or um, make the troubled spirits of ancestors go away, we sure as hell need a lot of that you know, based on what the Atonists have given us. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's partly yeah. what the book is also, is, you know, telling us. We could use a lot of mumbo jumbo. We need a lot of it to help us get rid of all the stuff that the Atonists and the, our, you know, ancestors. But at the, you were talking like at the, about the end of the book, and I think consistent with everything we're saying is, and then the sort of non-linearity is this, you know, at the very end, he's a writer who, like another, some other writers too, like even Gabriel Garcia Marquez, maybe in a hundred years of solitude, the idea that time is cyclical, not linear. Yeah. Cause at the very end, after that whole 
um, sort of back and forth with that guy outside the uh, Berkeley, you know, the, the lecture that he gave. who's was like, why don't you say this? And it should be like that. It should be very disciplined. And the last words of the novel, are, you know, time is a pendulum, not a river. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. akin to what goes around, comes around. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which seems to be implying that, again, this sort of time is more circular or goes in, pat- in circles than a straight line. Mm-hmm. Um, the dress crew will keep coming back. The eightness will keep trying to stamp it down, but it'll keep coming back. Characters don't develop like they do in a standard novel. How come this character... It, it, none of that would fit with this kind of with this kind of thinking or this kind of book when 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 time is circular, not linear. I think. So, would you say that right now we're in a time of Jess Grew or we're in a time of Atonism? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I I mean, in some ways, this has got to be considered a very Atonist time, from what I can see. Very Atonist. Very Atonist. It's yes. got to be. It has to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't see how you could interpret it as, uh, you know. Um, I mean, I think it, that's a very good question. I think what you, I guess, you know, right. We kind of have maybe the, the 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 genius of the time now, for the, at least from the eightness perspective, is people think they're living just grew because you have a lot of easily digestible enjoyment mm. at your fingertips uh-huh. right you can come right. home and spend all week you can not leave your house one time all weekend and just indulge in enjoyable things because everything That's is right. at your fingertips we all know right. what's at our right everyone knows what that is between mm-hmm. apple music and amazon and whatever you like it's there for you to do easily and you don't have to be wealthy to partake right it's right at everyone's right. everyone's fingertips almost everyone's fingertips um so it seems like you're living just grew, but that's not really just grew. It's just sort no. of it's not it's not unenjoyable. I mean, I don't mean it's terrible, but it's not just whereas then you go out and you go about your eightness week and you go about your eightness life, you know, the life yeah. that's sort of the demanded by the eightness, I should say. It's more right. of that. Right. Um so that's maybe what's different than in 1972. It's not quite so like eightness versus or the or in the twenties. It's not eightness versus just grew. It's it's there's enough diversion that it could seem just grew like, but it's not really just grew. It's it's completely it's very much eightness. That's right. my so that's yeah. So if we were to have a sequel to Mumbo Jumbo, it would have to include things like the internet. And it begs the question, is the internet eightness or is it just grew? Is it and more I, just I, grew? I think it's I think it depends on what you look at. I really I think now yeah. obviously it's more eightness. The eightness will always have the biggest slice of the pie as far as right. I'm concerned. You know, right. like you'll see that with things like news outlets and and everything kind of collapsing into a linear sort of narrative that it's easy for people to understand. But there are there are little pockets of just grew out there. And I think you do kind of find them um when when they're not gross, right? I think you do mm. tend to find them in the conspiracy realm, in the uh, kind of realm of some more fringe artists. I think that, but I think that what's maybe really valuable about Jess Grew versus Atonism is that it's not it's not a very hard binary. You can get a little bit of the peanut butter and the chocolate and vice versa. Mm. You can have something that seems very Jess Grew, but is in fact Atonist and vice versa, right? Yeah. Like you just, I think you that's have more to be, so now than before. Yeah. 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 Well, but what you have to be looking for at the end of the day is, is this a thing that pushes forward uh, a narrative, a primary narrative that we're all supposed to swallow? Or is this something that is almost largely unconcerned with narrative and is more concerned with just kind of visceral experience? Right. And I think with art, that's really, I think that's really telling for. I don't know if we're looking at movies or music from from today. It's like it, it because it doesn't. I guess what I'm getting at is that it doesn't even matter if it's good or bad. You and I have talked about this before. How good and bad are such boring uh, indicators oh, yeah. of yeah. of of the of the interestingness of a particular piece of art. Mm. And it almost I almost feel like Jess Grew and Aitness 
I might I might nerd out a little bit and start using that as my my new binary <laughs> for 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 how to explain the things that I like or don't like because it says a lot. It's very complex and you'd have to explain it to a lot of people. Yeah. But I feel like this really kind of put a finger on things that you know, sometimes I'll go to see a film that is widely praised and it'll just feel off to me. It doesn't feel alive. Mm. It doesn't feel right. You know, it feels and then, like and then vice yeah, versa, I'll see something right, where I'll point. see something where people say like, Oh, this is really bad. And I'll go see it and think, Oh no, this is, this is, right. this feels like a person made it. This is that good. Would be, that would be, instead of like Siskel and Ebert with thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs down. We do a, we do like a movie. Let's say it's movies, books, whatever. And it's like, that will be the final vert. It's 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 definitely more Jess grew. I don't know, David. I thought that was very eightnist. I yeah. really thought that was eightnist. <laughs> I tended to find more eightnist uh, sensibilities <laughs> in this film myself, and I and I would say that sounds very eightnist of you to say. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think one area though where I think it is where you do see a, a lot of eight, you know, a lot of eightnism is you, it's very confused. It's more it's more um, complicated, complex now. I, that's true, but like, like one thing in this book that is really pushed. That's a major part of the book that I think is more prevalent now, clearly than when Reed was writing in 1972. Things have progressed a lot more. Where, like, the idea, you know, it's way more widespread now that. You know, the idea of Western civilization, more or less white Western civilization, um, is not the end all and be all. I mean, that's clear, right? There are more voices. There are more people who look at history from a different but, perspective in but. the arts and everything. And they're, and they're out and about and very vo- – and that, that's fantastic, right? That, so that's it's something great. where – right. Yeah. It's what's well, great, but is that is that what you say it is, or is that just the rise of the talking androids? No, but right, right, no. <laughs> well, there are some talking androids. There always mm. will be. That's mm-hmm. true. But mm. I think one area where one where you know conceivably you see Atonism tangled up with that is, and it cannot forget. I, in my opinion, that one of Ishmael, and this comes through in some of his other books too that he really, really, really rejects is the idea of one, one way of seeing things. And a lot of people who may now, let's say, you know, ascribe to a counter narrative to the dominance of white Western civilization, they have a counter narrative, but it's still, they're still ascribing to oneness, right? These people are right. These people are wrong. This yep. person did something, right. they're out. This person is good. This person That's is right. not good. That person's right. a piece of shit. That's totally atonistic thinking as I perceive it, according yeah. to you know, according to this book. You know well, what I and mean? it's I've I've often brought this up when it comes to things like politics, you know. The oneness um, theory. Yeah, right. the yeah, the the oneness. It's the idea that, okay, we, we can all agree that Donald Trump sucks, right? I think we're all on board with that. But I always have this thought experiment in my head of, but what if he started doing really good things? Mm-hmm. Just hy- just hypothetically, right? I'm right. Not saying there, this is I a real thing. Saying. Yeah. Like, what if what if one day he just started doing everything that you and I on the left wanted to do? Mm-hmm. Would we be able to say, hey, this is actually this is pretty fucking good? Like, mm-hmm. and I don't think we would be able to because I think that we are atonists on our own side. And I think that mm. we have this binary of what's going right. bad. And I think that the reason why that meta- that thought experiment is important is because I think that you can find those things if you look hard enough. I think that's going to make a lot of people spill uh, uh, their coffee all over their shirts and become like very irate and say like this person has never done anything good. They're and I would say just calm down. I'm just saying that we. It, it, our eyes aren't open to those things, even if they were to be happening. Right. Right. I know. Right, right. I mean, I think I think that, and I think, you know, on the sort of like literary side, or the um, signaling side. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would love to ask Ishmael Reed. You know, you were talking about atonism or not, like that whole the whole aspect in this book and in many of his other books of. Um, you know, like the, more in tune with the James Baldwin, Charles Wright discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there's so much 
Caltech. You know, I, it, it, just in our world, like the literary world, there is so much like phoniness and kowtowing right. Right. And, and virtue signaling and all the typical bullshit that, that goes on every day. And everybody, you know, parading their virtue and parading they believe in the right things, etc. Et there mm -hmm. is no way any self-respecting satirist would look at that and be like, this is the most ridiculous bullshit I've ever... Even if people sometimes are right. It's not so much about right or who's correct. It's not about, about right the, or wrong. About the That's issue. not what atheism is. It's the behavior. Is. It's no. the human that's phoniness right. behind it. That's you know what right. I mean? That's, that's why this is such a valuable metaphor for what we're going through right now. Because what Reed is saying in that essay that you sent to me that's on LitHub, um, mm. what he's saying is not... He, he never says that Baldwin's a bad writer. Right. He never says that those books are bad, but he says that there's a fundamental difference going on between how these two people acted within their personal lives and how that affected their art, whether the words on the page are good or bad. Like, you know, Baldwin very specifically started pivoting to white, hetero, uh, not heterosexual, but white homosexual characters mm. to get his point across better and to ingratiate himself more. And Wright was still writing about the floozies and junkies and all these kind of people. <laughs> right. and, and I felt like when I was, when I'm reading all this, I felt a kindred spirit because it's something that I often try to articulate when I'm thinking about writers that you and I know and the world that we live in, where I'm like, I'm not saying that any of this is bad. I'm just saying that it's very atonist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't have the word for no it. Will know, very few people will know what you're talking. I just, I just like didn't the have the They'll word have for it. Like a little no signal, you know, to know I know what yeah. you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll do the little <laughs> little finger wiggle. Um, but uh, but no, but I I was always looking for this word and I never knew what it was. And it was yeah. you know in in my career in in books I've seen these people. Uh, who I would label as Atonist, I've seen them kind of rise up and become very <laughs> successful, and there's nothing wrong with them. Some of my best friends are Atonists. I should get that on a shirt, <laughs> right? Uh, but, Good name for a new book. Some of my yeah. best friends are Atonists. <laughs> Some yeah. of my best friends are Atonists. But, like, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. And then you kind right. of see, because people who are just screwed, because they're so kind of wild, they're so untamed, I think of certain friends of mine whom I will not name on this mm. podcast – but who are brilliant writers who've had some kind of success, but who, for example, haven't been able to keep their mouths shut when they right. needed to be shut. Uh, people who when success have, comes knocking, they're just not. When there, success they the comes knocking, the they're not the door, there. One or the other. Yeah. When right. when success comes knocking, they don't like the way they look through the peephole and say, <laughs> "Keep moving." Whereas <laughs> some people who are also, you know, again, yeah. best friends, greatness. Right. Uh, there are some people I see who just continue. They're always home. They're ready. Right. They they've they've cooked a full meal for success right. to to come. Oh, success! Oh, come right in. Come, come right, right in. in. I have I have an appetizer. For, I have an hors d'oeuvre ready for you right now. So and right. I I can't besides just being uh, sort of contrarian and sort of a general misanthrope. I've had trouble articulating what bothers me about that. And what I love so much about mumbo jumbo is that it gave me two words. That uh, in, in typically white guy fashion, I can co-opt for my own uses. So there we go. <laughs> I, I, I got to say, too, like, you know, just at a, on a level, like a, just a reading level. I mean, when you think of um, we were talking about this a little bit the other day. You know, first of all, I just love I, I if, if somebody like was to put a gun to my head and say, like, what? Is it what is your favorite form of of, uh, of writing of literature? Uh -huh. I would say there's I wouldn't name one type, I mean, but I would say that there is no type I like better. This would be uh -huh. definitely honest and true. There's no type I like better than and it's than great satire. It's the rarest. Yeah. Going back to Gulliver's Travels, some of the Mark Twain. You know, Ishmael Reed is in that is in that league. The great satirist. It's the, I think it's the hardest thing to do. It's so rare. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about humor, but a certain kind of satire. It's really I think the it takes a certain kind of rare genius to write that level of great satire. Vonnegut does it. You know, sometimes uh -huh. it's really rare. And people today don't mostly do it. Comedians do it now. I think comedians do it. No, and that's one reason. Like there's nothing. There's nothing like a great comedian because. Mm. 
they, they, they say things and they express things in a way that other people can't or won't do. And it's, it's really rare. It's, and comedians yeah. are like among the few who do it now. That's true. How often Chappelle. do you see a rare Chappelle's satirical one of them. movie? Huh? Chappelle's one of them. Chappelle's one of them. Yeah. And, 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 and satirists have always also faced a lot of, you know, they face a lot of vitriol and flack. Cause, and that's a good satirist. Because yeah. they're yeah. they're getting under people. You know, a bad satirist means they're just like nasty and they're not funny. But when you have a great satirist and they're making really valid points, they may be ugly points people or get, difficult points. They get so but, pissed. Um, aside from comedians, because there are yeah, obviously some great black comedian satirists who've been around mm-hmm. in the last 30, 40 years. That's another thing about Ishmael Reed. Just uh, it's a basic point and an obvious one. How many great black literary satirists? Have there been in liter in history? There are a few. Good question, man. Paul Beatty. Paul Beatty's not really many. good. Huh? Um, Paul Beatty's really good. Yeah, right. Um, There's one named George Shiler who wrote in the 20s, who's not as well. He wrote one of the first black sci-fi novels, a sci-fi sat- satire where people okay. can change their skin color between black and white. Uh, and mm-hmm. lo and behold, they did a reissue some years ago. And who wrote the who wrote who do you think wrote the introduction? Ishmael Reed. Ishmael Reed, yeah. There we go. There we go. Man, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna end it on this note. So I have uh, about five Ishmael Reed books (laughs) in my (laughs) queue. I have uh, Reckless Eyeball. I have uh, that Reckless Eyeballing. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Reckless Eyeballing. Uh, what else do I have? Hold on. Let me actually look this up so I don't I don't get this wrong. Let me see what my library looks like right now. Oh, it's not on this computer. Fuck me. Um, well, yellow radio broke down. I have uh, that. I have that. I have, uh, 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 there's one that has a different country in the, in the name. Flight Um, to Canada. Flight to Canada. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there we go. He invented, (laughs) he says he invented, actually, when you read that one, that'd be a good one. He, uh, just, even if we just talk off the cuff, because that's a book where he actually satirizes of all things. The slave escape narrative, which who would even think of satirizing something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I certainly that, wouldn't, but he can. He can, right, he, can well, yeah. he can do no wrong in my eyes right now. Like, I'm just like, whatever he does, it's cool. I got The Last Days of Louisiana Red, right? I read uh, that one, which yeah. seems like another Papa LeBob book. Yeah. Um, That's the next then, one after this, the one he wrote right after this one. Yeah. After yeah. Mumbo Jumbo. I, I want to I get his. Uh, his walking in Oakland memoir. I like those kind of travelogue type, type yeah. books. And I would love to see what his mind does with, I would, this is how good Ishmael Reed is. Like when I saw that he wrote a book about walking around Oakland, I thought, mm. yes, I have to read that. <laughs> I, I have yeah. to, I have to, which actually, if you don't mind, I would like to kind of end on this sort of note with, um, mm. you know, talking about somebody like Ishmael Reed, Talking about different auteurs, right? Not just authors, but auteurs. Yeah. These people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had this really interesting conversation about uh, writers recently, and we were talking about how writers that we know a- attempt to achieve, you know, fame and glory by sort of finding the right plot that they think will sell, and then mm-hmm. writing the book that is uh, is 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 very palatable, what have you. And I was like, oh. When I was reading this book, I realized they have it all backwards. You have to be an interesting mind first, mm. and then you can write about anything. You can write Flight to Canada about uh, escaped slaves. Well, I, I can't. He can. Um, right, no, I, yeah, I know what you mean. But, right. But people, like, and I, I think when I was talking to you, I brought up Otessa Moshveg, who wrote My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is about a woman who lays in bed the whole novel and takes a bunch of, you know, sedatives and is just generally <laughs> terrible, which, you know, if you were like, do you want to read a novel about that? I would say no. Does but not sound thrilling. Right. Does not sound thrilling. But when I saw that book come out and I saw the name Otessa Moshvig, I'm like, I will read that mm. because I want to spend time inside of her head. With and her, so what, right. What, exactly. So like what we're missing from modern books is that kind of like that genius yeah. – that that right. I just want to I just want to live inside their head for two hundred pages. I don't care right. what it's about. I don't I just, care. What I just want to be there because I know it'll be something fat. I know it'll be something interesting. It'll be idiosyncratic. It'll mm-hmm. be you know it'll be right. 
no, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, when I think, and when it really, you're right, coming back to this book, that was the kind of thing that set it off for a lot of writers, set that kind of thinking off in relation to a lot of writers where I re you remember like just picking up a book and saying like, like you just did with the with the rest and relaxation book. I, it's not even what so much it's so much what it's about. It's I want to read that author. Yep. You know, um, yep. uh, remember like you know it's another roadside attraction. It's like it's about a girl with big you know what a girl with big thumbs and she says like, I, whatever. It's Tom Robbins. It's got to be good. It's gonna what, what's right. it talking about? I'll find out. It's gonna be interesting. I'll find out exactly, exactly. You know, and that's part of the interesting thing. It's like what is it about? I don't, I don't know. I just want to see what this guy's got to say, you know, I just, <laughs> right, yeah. but we need more of these kind of like, uh, these sort of, uh, polymaths, right? Like these, these people who are just interesting thinkers. In and out of themselves, right. Yes. And, I mean, I've, and they, I've, I've found them outside of the realm of fiction. I found nonfiction people like who I kind of follow online who always seem to have something very kind of counterintuitive and interesting to say about whatever is going on and whatever they put out, I will consume because that's interesting to me. Right. No, right. right. No. But a lot of these people is like, I'm, I'm writing a book about this, that and it's like, well, you should maybe try being a genius first. I don't right, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, also I think like a lot of, a, a lot of that related to that is like, they have a, you know, here's my plot, blah, blah, blah. Um, I know just offhand, you know, thinking of writers read over the years and like you mentioned, like the Ishmael Reed going through Oakland, like when I think of the best, tra just like travel writers, like Oakland, mm -hmm. if in, in and out of itself, I'm sure it's interesting. It's guy, it's definitely interesting. It's history. I want you, you want to see what Ishmael Reed, his impressions and his thoughts are, are about that city and its history and everything else. Like when I would pick up a book by Joan Didion or V.S. Naipaul. I'm just trying to think of people offhand. No matter where they went in the world, like you, books you by wanna, writers were great yeah. novelists, but also they travel a lot. That was exactly the... I want to see what Joan Didion thinks of El Salvador. I mean, El Salvador is interesting, but I want to see what she thinks of El Salvador or Miami. That's, I, but, that's, or, but that's also like you know, why you would read like Pauline Kael on movies. On movies, who, get, right. who gives a shit about the movie? Like let's <laughs> right. let's 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 spend a few minutes in Pauline Kael's mind because right. that that's what's actually interesting. Regardless of the movie, it might be yeah. a movie I'm not even all that interested in. You know, I'll probably see it if if after read, but I want to see what she said about it. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Exactly. And I think that. I think that if uh, if we leave on any kind of note, because we're coming up on an hour. Well, well mm -hmm. we passed an hour. Jesus. Um, it's like a normal that's, phone call. That's that's yeah right. Uh, every time that me and Scott get off the phone, I look at it and I'm like, Scott, we've been talking for two and a half hours. Like, <laughs> I only show up to work with bags under my eyes, and they ask me why, and I say, it's Osborne. Last night it was Atonist against Jess Groove. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but anyway. <laughs> like that guy's fucking weird, um, but he's also our boss, so we got to be nice to him. So we got to um, be nice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, but I'm gonna I get Atonist on your ass, and you're not gonna like. So. You're not you're not gonna like it. Very disciplinarian. Um, but no, I think that I think that if if writers can take anything away from this, it's like this kind of it's it's seemingly trite, but if you were to put it into the eightness or just screw category, it's like anything that you're thinking about writing, write that thing. And mm. all of the rules that you've you've internalized them for a reason because yeah. they'll be the, the, they will be there to serve you when mm -hmm. when you kind of need them and you you have to pull them out. But don't have fidelity to those rules. Like right. start yeah. writing crazy shit, just right. crazy shit. It's a yeah. book that doesn't have a, a third act, or it's a book that you know has these characters that you never get into, or it's right. a book. Where you have a character that you really get into, and to to the expense of everything else, like Mary mm -hmm. Robinson or something like that, you know? Right, right, um, absolutely, yeah. It's like yeah. just just feel that kind of like Jess Grew spirit, and realize that you you have no obligation to follow these rules. Yeah, like, like just just do your thing. I just right. I just I just no. if I if I if I find an artist where I feel like. They're just kind of doing their thing. I'm a fan immediately. Yeah. Like, right. 
Yeah. Learn, learn everything you can read on everything. So like you just said, you internalize everything, but once you get into it, then, you know, all bets are off. Use the rules as appropriate and, 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 and forget the rules. Like exactly. Instead of just following when people start turning, you know, talking about three acts, my eyes glaze over at this point. Yeah. I mean, they it's really like, do. it's like, but what if yeah. the third act sucks? What if it's not like, Oh, I'm having a lot of trouble with my third act. It's like, then don't do it. <laughs> then don't have one. Like who, like, yeah. who cares? Who cares? Yeah. There's, there's no rules here. Nobody's making any money. <laughs> I know, no, I know exactly. It's I, not a, it's not that. an assembly line where you have to do X, Y, Z to make sure that you get paid for the day. Like you can yeah. just, you just fucking end it. It's fine. It's like just, just end your book. Yeah, I would, I would find a lot more books much more interesting if they just ended suddenly. Yeah. Where it's just, oh, and okay, I guess that's it. Yeah. yeah no, right. I write. I mean, if, if there's nothing, no, that's. I mean, I was just reading, you know, not too long ago, this book by this, uh, you know, Swiss writer Fleur Jaye. I know you know. You, you know. Yes. You know she is, and she wrote this book, Three Imaginary Lives, about three people. The only one I really know well is Thomas. Three people who are not even all that relevant anymore. I mean, why read Thomas De Quincey? They're all from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. They're all writers. Thomas De Quincey, who wrote, you know, Confessions of an Opium Addict. Um, Keats. Everybody knows John Keats, I guess. But I mean, I, I haven't read John Keats since high school, you know, whatever. Yeah. And a French writer I never even read. Um, Marcel Schwab was his name. So, but I like her. So this is a perfect example. The Quincy I'm, I'm interested in, but you know, I read his I've read his books and like I don't have to read something else, but but I like her. So mm-hmm. it's like let me yeah. read this yeah. book. And she wrote three essays. The book is made up, and it, they're like little biographies. Each biography is no more than I don't know six seven pages. They're so dense, eight pages summing up. It's just fascinating the way she does it. Her mind mm-hmm. with her language, and I don't know. She could say I'm going to write three books about my three neighbors. You know, three essays about my three neighbors in Switzerland. I'd read it. You'd buy the fucking book. I'd buy the book. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, on that note, that is the end of our second part of our talk about Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. Uh, Go, like, seriously, go read this book. It's really good. It's it's, 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 it's a fun, uh, and it's a, we should stress also, all of the stuff we've been talking about really sincerely meant is a very funny enjoyable book it's 220 pages uh it's not a hard book there's a ton of stuff in it it's but it's not a hard book to read at all flies by yeah really does all right well thank you scott for coming on the show i appreciate you uh with this whole like week-long gap and everything like coming back it was hard to keep it keep track (laughs) but i did my best (laughs) all right thanks a lot okay my pleasure that was fun